here. <laughs> Knew that was going to happen. Uh, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FB Hanford, and I am pumped that you're here with us today. Uh, we are continuing on in our series uh, called Epistles, and, uh, and we are drinking from a fire hose until December. And uh, we are, uh, we're going through a Pauline epistle every single week. And so last week, we, uh, we went through Romans, the entire book of Romans. Um, and so I left exhausted. I hope you didn't leave as tired as I did, um, because I felt like I was, just, I was just spewing things at you. That's probably a better word for me to use than spewing, but that's okay. We'll just go with it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so as we talked about last week, uh, Paul is a pretty incredible person in, uh, in the life of the church. Okay. Paul uh, wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. He started going through what many consider uh, to be Paul's greatest work, which was what we covered last week in the book of, uh, of Romans. Um, and uh, this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians. And so what we're doing, we're not going in order of timeline of when these were written. We're going in what would be called canonical order, okay? So the order of the books of the Bible, the order of the books of the canon, okay? And the canon is the, 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 the books of the Bible in the order that you find them. Circular there. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but we're looking at those from a 30,000-foot level. So for those of you who want me to camp in like 1 Corinthians 14 and really hone in on what I believe about uh, speaking in tongues in church, we're not going to get to it. Sorry. Um, Not sorry. Um, And uh, just like we did last week, there's a couple things that I want to cover about Paul before we actually jump into this whole thing. So Paul started as a young man by the name of Saul and was bent on eliminating Christianity from the face of the earth. He was a Jew and a Pharisee and a well-respected one at that. Beyond that, he's well-versed in the Old Testament, okay? So he knew everything there was to know about the Old Testament. He was a man of knowledge, he was a man of writing, and he was a man of spirit. That's who Paul was, or who Saul was, rather. Then Jesus directly intervenes. The risen Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. It's an encounter that completely and totally transformed him, transformed his life. And Saul became the beloved apostle, saint, evangelist, theologian, and pastor that we know now as Paul, right? Um, Paul wrote 27 books of the New Testament, or of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul wrote 13, excuse me. Um, And of all of the biblical human authors, Paul has written the most books of the Bible, okay? So as we're going through these epistles, we have to recognize that Paul is kind of a big deal, at least as far as writing scripture goes. Paul even tells us that he was chosen for a few specific tasks. It tells us that in Ephesians chapter 3. For those of you who were here last week, this is a review for you. But Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, it says, Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So in other words, Paul's job was to preach Christ to the Gentiles and convey God's plan for managing the church. That's what he was responsible for, okay? That's what Paul is going to do in each of these epistles. So we see him preach Christ to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, okay? For those of you who have read the book of Acts, that's where Paul is going to be preaching Christ to the Gentiles for the first time. And then we see him uh, kind of unravel God's plan for managing the church in these letters. Now, last week when we talked about the book of Romans, we talked about, we talked about how we came to faith in Christ or how people should come to faith in Christ, 
right? Paul talked about the idea of sin, and then he talked about the idea of salvation, and then he talked about the idea of sanctification, all the way through until we got to the idea of service. And we know that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it starts with, therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers. And so because of everything that happened in chapters 1 through 11, we get to chapter 12, and Paul says, because of all of these things, you should now be doing this. And that's kind of where we landed last week. And it was, very, it was very personal to all of us because it has to do directly with our own salvation. But what we're going to be dealing with today in 1 Corinthians is a church that's pretty messed up. It's a church in Corinth that Paul established. And so like last week, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and say, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Go ahead and do that, church. Now the hard one. The personal one, turn to your neighbor and say, my church isn't perfect. Now the harder one, and men, I give you permission to say this to your wives, you're not perfect. Say it. It's a biblical truth. It's in Genesis. We're all fallen. And we all give grace as well. So... But Paul's letters falls into two groups, letters to churches and letters to individuals, right? And so this one specifically is going to be letters to churches. So here's our first slide that we have here. The author of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul. He writes it in about 56 AD. That's our best guess as to when he actually writes it. It's written from Ephesus in Turkey, in modern-day Turkey. Now, Ephesus, you'll probably recognize the root of that. That is where we will learn where Jeff is actually going to preach on the book of Ephesians, okay? That's, that's the church that is in Ephesus. So he's writing from Ephesus. But remember, these epistles are written at, or are named after, rather, the churches that he wrote them to, not where he wrote them from, okay? So he's writing it to the church that we find in Corinth. So before we jump into all of our different sections and how we're going to break them down and everything like that, we have to know a little bit more about the church that is Corinth so we can understand what Paul is talking about. So Corinth is an ancient city in Greece, okay? So these aren't any fill-in-the-blanks, but if you want to take notes, go ahead. You type A people who need to take notes so you get your gold star later on. You go for it. Um, but it's an ancient city of Greece, a uh, super prosperous city um, because of the incredible wealth that's generated uh, because of its port. It was a port city. And so people would come in and out and there was a lot of trade and that sort of thing going on there. Um, and so because of that, it was incredibly wealthy. There were a ton of Greek gods and goddesses that were worshipped here as well. There's actually a temple there uh, to Aphrodite. And we'll see that, that because of that culture that, uh, that, 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 Corinth, that Corinth, rather, um, really started to perpetuate, the church is going to fall back into some of those issues. Okay, so there's a temple there to the goddess of love, like I said, who's Aphrodite. Um, and, and this whole idea of um, sexual immorality and sexual freedom, as they would call it, really was one of the, the defining cornerstones of the church in Corinth. It really became a tourist attraction to the pagan world to do all the things that they wanted to do. I think probably a good way their, uh, their phrase would probably be what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. <laughs> and that's really kind of what's going on in, in, in this city. Christianity, though, comes to Corinth through the Apostle Paul. It's on his second missionary journey. And he started, like he normally did, by going into different synagogues in the area and then eventually Paul got run out of the synagogues. And so what he did was he set up a home church, 
A lot of people believe it was actually right next to the synagogue, right? Talk about passive aggressive. He's like, hey, you know what? Forget you guys. I'm going to set up shop right next door instead. And so that's ultimately what Paul did. And so he established this church. This was something that he helped birth. He started its roots. So even when we think about, about First Baptist Hanford and the fact that we were established in 1892 in a train car, that's cool. We did that. So Paul, but you can imagine those, those founding members even of our church, of F.B. Hanford, had some deep roots. So we started this. We were able to put this together in order for Christ's name to be better known. We did this. So Paul probably had a whole lot of skin in the game when it comes to this specific church in Corinth. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to that church in response both to reports that that had come to him and to a letter that he received from the Corinthians. So this is why he's writing it. The Corinthians had misunderstood Paul's message of the gospel and had created dissension in the church over a whole bunch of different issues. The church is messed up. The Corinthians had questions about Paul's leadership. They questioned his integrity. They talked about the Lord's Supper, about marriage, and other matters of Christian living. Uh, And in sending this letter to them, Paul hoped to follow it, actually, with a personal visit to the church in Corinth. But circumstances made it impossible for him to do so. And because of that, he ends up writing the letter of 2 Corinthians. So, in having conversations with different people throughout my ministry career, I know that some people are going to have very strong feelings about the things that I talk about today because of the fact that the church is a messed up place and there's a whole bunch of things in here that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians that we're still trying to sort out today. And I need you all to understand that we will not fix the church before Christ comes back. We can do our best and we can enter into that process of sanctification, that process of becoming holy like we talked about last week. But we need to recognize that the church is ultimately going to be a place that is a messed up place where we're trying to do our best because it's run by people who are not perfect. It's run by people who are doing their best to discern the voice of God, doing the best, their best in order to, to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. But ultimately, we're all fallen, we're all broken, we're all busted up. And so that means that anything that we try to do is going to be fallen, is going to be broken, and is going to be busted up. But thankfully, we're covered by the grace of God. And that's what Paul is going to talk about today in his letter to the church in Corinth. So... To those of you who've been disenfranchised by the church or maybe have felt like the church wasn't a safe haven for you to be in process towards Christ, just know that we're all in process, that none of us have arrived. And I hope this morning can provide us all with the realization that none of us are as big of a deal as we assume ourselves to be. The church is about Christ and us being in sync with the Spirit of God. So with all that being said, we're going to jump into our first section. Our first section that we're going to cover is 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 through 4. Your major theme here is going to be reproof of sin. Paul's dissatisfaction of the sin that's going on in the church. Now remember, Paul had been to this church in Corinth. He had helped establish this church in Corinth. He isn't writing as a stranger like he was last week to the church in Rome. He's writing as someone who had, like I said, skin in the game in the midst of this church. 
They should know better. Paul helps set them up better than this. So as he's writing to these people, he knows them personally and knows that the things that he has heard, the things they are doing, that they should already know better than this. And so your major, your key verse here is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30. And it says this. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. You almost hear Paul telling them, you're not a big deal. This isn't because of you. This is because of Jesus. Over and over and over and over again, he's pointing people back to Jesus. And what he's also saying here is that it doesn't matter where we were. It doesn't matter where we came from. It matters who we are in Christ now. We're justified with Christ So it's keeping true to my rule that I established last week, that word justification, right? That's part of the whole salvation narrative. And the first thing that that we have to do is is be justified before the Lord. That means be be declared right standing before the Lord. And so at the end of service where I I present the ABCs every week, the admit, believe, choose, and you say yes to Jesus, Romans 10, 9, we studied it this morning in in my study that I have. But in order for us to become a believer, a follower of Christ, to be justified, we have to simply believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you will be saved. That's the idea here of justification. It doesn't matter where we were. It matters where we're going. It matters the fact that Christ has redeemed us. He's justified us. And because of that, we can push forward. Paul is telling us that God uses the shameful things of this world in order to ensure that when good things happen, that the world knows it isn't because of us, it's because of Christ through us. That's what Paul is talking about here. The entire, the entire Bible is full of these kind of backwards ideas, right? If you have read scripture, there's backwards ideas all over the place. It's the entire reason that so many people who consider themselves Jewish rejected the idea of Jesus as the Messiah, All of them did, because he was a nobody from nowhere. And the Jews had it built up in their head that that Jesus was coming and looking a whole lot more like Jesus does in the book of Revelation, for those of you who read that, all bowed up on a white horse with with a sword dipped in blood and ready to go to battle. They were waiting for that Messiah to come, rather than one who was born as a baby in a barn. And so the Jews had a, whole, a, a really hard time for that. Even in John chapter 1, when Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, is saying, hey, Nathaniel, who also comes to be one of Jesus' disciples, like, hey, dude, you, you need to come meet this guy. And Nathaniel's response, I feel like, is spot on when we're talking about the, the Jewish understanding of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth when he says, Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And that's his Jewish understanding of who Jesus is, but it's full of these backwards ideas. So for Paul to remind the church in Corinth of this was not strange. It should serve as a reminder to us. 
So for your parents out there, this isn't, this isn't like, like you teaching your kids how to clean their room for the first time, right? And when, you, when I say teaching your kids how to clean their room for the first time, I mean like you're doing most of it and they're sitting there watching you or playing with Legos in the corner pretending to clean. <sighs> I'm perpetually teaching my kids how to clean their room. Um, but it isn't like that. It's like when you have like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 year old and you say, hey, go clean your room. And then they come back to you and say, you know what, dad, my room is clean. Mom, my room is clean. You're like, sweet, let me check. And they get a nervous look on their face where you're like, they're confident in it. They're like, okay, yeah, go ahead. You go check. And then you go and the room is, is clean. And then all of a sudden you walk towards the closet and you turn the handle to the closet and open it. And all of a sudden, oh, wait. Hey, give me a couple more minutes to, uh, to be able to make sure that that thing's taken care of because uh, it's, so that's how Paul, that's what Paul is doing here is reminding them of things that they should have already known how to do, okay? My 10-year-old, my nine-year-old rather, he knows that when I say, hey, bud, it's time for you to go clean your room, that that should include your closet. It should include under the bed. It should include under the bookcase, like your bookcase where all the books are just like laying over. Like, that's not, that's not how we do things, bro. Like, set the things up. To, like, this is how Paul is responding to them when he's talking about their reproof of sin. Paul is saying, you know better. So do this. I taught you better. I set this up better. So do this. So he reminds the Corinthian church and specifically the individuals in that church that the sins that they are committing aren't okay. And as a reminder to all of you, if God is going to work in your midst, you have to realize that you aren't that big of a deal. This is Christ, not us. That's what he's telling the church. And this is what I'm expressing today as well. This is all about Christ. This is not about us. And Paul's going to get even deeper and deeper into that as we continue down. Because this whole movement of Christianity, this whole movement of believers is not merely about the sum of our parts. This movement is about the risen Christ. So then he goes on to section two. Section two is 1 Corinthians really 5 to 11, okay? And you can break this down, like I said last week, in whatever way you want to. But specifically, our major theme this week is going to be lack of discipline, okay, in this chapter. There's a, there's a big lack of discipline that we have going on. Key verse here is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We'll get to that in a sec, though. But in the second section, Paul's dealing with people uh, that need to be disciplined, and addresses more sin that's going on in the life of the church. So I told you that the church in Corinth was a port city. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? Like that's, that's what we're dealing with here. That's ultimately what Paul is going to be dealing with in the first couple chapters of the, of the second section. He's talking about sexual immorality that's going on within the church. He heard about, he heard about uh, someone having a relationship with their stepmom. Heard about people worshiping the goddesses and even people who are sleeping with prostitutes at those temples who are a part of the church. Now, obviously, this isn't, this isn't their best life. This isn't what Paul wants for them. But on top of that, to make matters worse, there are people in the church who are saying, no, that's fine. You go ahead and you do that. They're condoning the behavior. It's not just them participating in the behavior. They're also condoning the behavior as the church that's set up in Corinth. Their whole idea is we're free in Christ and we're covered by grace. You do you. You do what you want to do. If it feels good, you do it. That's fine. 
But Paul ultimately rebukes them and tells them that Jesus died for their sins and was reborn. He reminds them that broken relationships are a regular part of sexual misconduct. And because of that, one of the best ways we can follow Christ is by honoring our body, the body that we have been given. That's why, that's why the key verse here is 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? This isn't about getting tattoos. This is about sexual immorality is what Paul is discussing here. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He's talking specifically to the church in Corinth who has sexual misconduct going on in their midst. And he says, honor your bodies. This isn't just about like going and grabbing the fast food after and you're like, I need to honor my body, which is true. You probably should. And don't eat McDonald's. It's gross. But if I offended somebody, come and talk to me afterwards. It's fine. I'll buy you a Big Mac. Um, (laughs) I'll pay you with McDonald's to go away. Um, Anyway, Paul is telling them here, though, that remember you were bought with a price. And your body, just like Jesus' will be raised from the dead. And because of that, what you do with your body matters. It's a big deal. He's reminded the Corinthians here that sexual deviancy is not honoring to God. And we're not just talking about about cheating on your wife. We're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about the things and the lust of the flesh that we see regularly. Like Jesus brought the law full circle and he said, you know what? You're not just cheating on your wife when you're actually cheating on her. We're considering it cheating on your wife if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. That's sexual deviancy. And so this applies to the church as a whole. We have an issue, church. We have a cultural issue, not just outside our walls, but inside them as well. And just like I talked about a few weeks past, the statistics between what people look at on the computers who aren't a part of the church are exactly the same as the statistics of people who look at things on their computers that are shouldn't inside the church. Paul is condemning sexual deviancy. And we have to recognize that sexual deviancy isn't just cheating on your wife physically. It's cheating on your wife emotionally. It's cheating on your wife with the things that you are seeing and looking at. Paul is condemning sexual deviancy. So then, Paul talks about food. And not like McDonald's food this time. Paul's talking about this whole idea that is it okay for people to eat meat from the animals who are being sacrificed to the temples of Greek and Roman gods, okay? There's this whole issue that's going on where some people are like, hey, it's totally okay that after an animal sacrifice happens for us to eat the food of that sacrifice, eat the meat of that sacrifice. And Paul, in typical Paulian fashion, is like, well, yes and no. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that, man. We had a whole bunch of that in Romans last week, so you're going to go ahead and do that in Corinthians? Okay, cool. Thanks. Appreciate that, Paul. But he, he reminds them that there is an uh, allegiance first. We need to have an allegiance first and foremost to God. 
So if you're in a situation where people know you're a Christian and people see you eating the meat of a burnt sacrifice and they assume then that it is okay for us to worship God, Christ, and also all of these other Greek and Roman gods because that would have been normal in the church of Corinth for them to be able to say, yep, we're going to worship this God and this God and this God and this God. No, cool. Jesus is a God too. Great. We're going to do that. And we're going to worship all these other gods as well. So Paul says, look, if there are people in your midst who are going to assume that it's okay for us to worship other gods, if we're eating that meat, then you probably shouldn't eat that meat. As he says, he says, you know, you use your conscience. What do you think? Are there people around you that you're going to make stumble because of this? Okay. Well, if there are, don't eat it. But then he goes on to say, he says, hey, if you're by yourself and there's no one who's going to assume that you're partaking in idol worship and it's okay for you to follow Jesus and somebody else, great, chow down. Grab that porterhouse and go to town, bro. It's fine. And that's what Paul was saying to these two different groups of people because there was a dissension then between, between those people who were Gentiles and those people who were Jews, right? The two different worldviews that we even talked about last week as well as we were getting into the book of Romans. Paul essentially tells them you're free to determine determine matters like this within your own conscience, which is hard for us because we want to, we want rules, right? We want rules for you type A people. You're like, give me a list of rules. I'll do them. I'll knock them out of the park. I'll have check marks. I'm going to write a list that says, make a list just so when I'm done, I could cross off, make a list on my list. Give me rules. And Paul's saying, nope, that's not how this is going to work. Paul's saying here, you need to figure out exactly what's going on in your heart. Use your conscience to determine matters like these. Because we love other people. When we love other people, we want to make sure that the things that we're doing aren't seen as stumbling to them. See, the guiding principle here is love. That's the guiding principle. It's love for other people, not love for steak or whatever it is that (laughs) the burnt offerings are going on. The guiding principle here is love that we would be okay putting our preferences aside to ensure that there is a path to Christ uh, for those people, that that path to Christ can come first. That it's not about our preferences. It's about getting out of our own way so other people can see who Jesus is. That's what Paul is talking about here. Which gets into this whole issue of, uh, of Christian freedom. And that's a little bit what the church in Corinth is struggling with here. This idea that we're covered by grace and, and hold on, you're telling me that, that Christ fulfilled the law and so it doesn't matter necessarily all the sins that I've done in the past or all the sins I'm going to commit in the future because I'm completely and totally covered by grace. Well, that's a pretty slippery slope. And we don't have, if we don't have the, this idea of sanctification like we talked about earlier and we talked about last week, this idea of becoming holy after justification, if we don't have that in mind, then we're going to fall into this idea of Christian freedom and we're going to say, you know what? You do you because you're covered by grace. That's fine. Do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. And that's what the church in Corinth was struggling with. It was pervasive in the, in the Corinthian church and we need to consistently guard against it in our own lives as well. Christian freedom essentially meaning that because Christ died for our sins, we can do whatever we want because we're now under the grace of God. So do whatever feels good. And it's a dangerous game. And we're actually going to look deeper into that idea of abusing our Christian freedom in Christ when we go into Galatians in a couple weeks. 
But let's get back to it. So Paul shifts towards their weekly worship gathering, right? Now Paul is making a shift, and this, this is a big chunk, right, that we're going through. But Paul shifts to their weekly worship gathering, and all of us good Baptists in here are like, this is it. This is when Peter tells us we've got to have an orderly worship gathering right now, and everybody's going to be quiet until they're supposed to laugh or supposed to say amen or supposed to raise their hand, right? This is it. And it's true. This is it. But what we need to recognize here is that Paul consistently, the guiding principle here is all about loving other people. So let me tell you what's going on. Okay. Um, People are speaking out loud during the prayer time at their worship gathering in different languages. They're speaking in tongues whenever they want to all willy nilly speaking in tongues. And then there are others who are also standing up and sharing a bit of teaching about God, which are like, okay, that's good. But what would happen is then someone else would stand up and start talking over the other person because they had something to share. And then all of a sudden there's this competition about who's going to speak when, and, and I'm going to speak louder than you are, and I have a louder voice. So because of that, you can go ahead and sit down. And in the corner, there's this group of people still speaking in tongues. And there's chaos going on in the midst of the church. And so Paul decides that he is going to do his best to try to rectify the situation because it's chaotic and it's distracting for people, especially newcomers to faith. So what Paul does is he zooms out and reminds them of the purpose of the entire gathering. Why do we get together as a church? Why do, the things, why do we do the things that we do as a church? He tells them that the church is a place where his spirit, the spirit of the Lord, should be working through everyone in a unified way. Should be working through everyone in a unified way. This is where Paul tells us about his awesome metaphor about the church being like a body, right? Where there's a whole bunch of members, and all of us have our own part to play, We should function in such a way that the body is moving in unison towards a common goal, which is the building up of the church, which is a really important piece there, the building up of the church. You want to know what spiritual gifts are for? For building up of the church. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians. Anybody watch the World Cup? Any World Cuppers in here? Yeah, no, me neither. Cool, three of you. Awesome. (laughs) It's soccer. I get it. Um, It's boy. Any any sport that can end in a tie, forget it. Um, but the World Cup specifically, I can watch the World Cup because I know it is the greatest of the great athletes playing, right? Like, I'm not going to watch, like, European League soccer at 4 o'clock in the morning just so I could watch soccer, right? And that's not me. But I can watch the World Cup. And so as I'm watching the World Cup, I'm watching these guys who are working in perfect unison with one another. The goalie knows his job. The strikers know their job. The mids know their job. And they're moving in perfect unison with one another. Apply it to any sport. Can you imagine, though, if in, in the World Cup, that they just all did what it is that they wanted to do? Like, they didn't have a coach manning the whole thing, saying, hey, you go here, you go here, this is your job, you go there. It would look like under eight soccer, which isn't fun to watch. <laughs> right? It's like just a mob following a ball. Over and over and over again. And for those of you who like go and watch that and you're like, you did so good. It's like you couldn't even see him. They were surrounded by 15 other people chasing a little round ball around the field. And it accidentally went into a net one time, right? (laughs) But that's essentially what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about all of us have our roles to play, each and every one of us. 
We have a job that we have to do. And if the goalie all of a sudden decides that he wants to be a forward, we're not going to be protected in the net. And vice versa, if we have a forward who decides he's going to go play goalie and grabs the ball with his hands whenever he wants to, we're going to have a bigger issue on our hands. And so Paul talks about this whole idea of of unison in Christ. We are unified in Christ. And we understand our, our role, our job that it is that we are supposed to play by discerning our spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, which are useful for the building up of the church. So if you have spiritual gifts, and if you have said yes to Jesus, you're justified before Christ, you do. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit who has given you spiritual gifts. If you have said yes to Jesus and you have your spiritual gifts, which again, you do, and you aren't using them, then you're doing something wrong. It's our responsibility to be able to utilize those spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us to build up the church. And that's kind of where Paul lands here. We need to play our positions. We need to utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to build up the church. Because the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Paul is talking about here, are not only useful, but they're also essential to the building up of the church. Paul concludes then that the highest value in the whole gathering of the church is that of love. That's what he decides. That's that's what he gets to here. If everyone considers others before themselves out of love, then they will be unified in voice. They will be unified in manner. They will be unified in their gathering because what's going to happen is you're going to show deference to your fellow believer. You're going to show deference to your fellow man. And so if I believe that somebody has a word that they are going to share at some point, then I should probably sit down, check my ego at the door and say, you know what? God has prepared a word for you, for us. And so because that man, utilize your spiritual gifts. But if we're distracting with our gifts, if we're doing things that, that, that would distract from the overall unison of the church, the unified movement of the body of Christ, then Paul says, don't do it. Lay it aside. Those are helpful, but they're helpful in the right context. Some people often think that the purpose of the gathering is for intense spiritual happenings, Right? talking about the idea of speaking in tongues and that sort of thing in prayers or in order for them to have a soapbox to do whatever it is they feel like doing at the time. Paul reminds them those spiritual gifts are great, but it's freaking other people out. So knock it off. But I also don't want to downplay those gifts. It's a tension that we have to hold. And so there are a whole lot of people and and this is a hotly debated issue and you're not going to find out where I stand on them at all. Good. I'll be like Paul today. Say yes and no. <laughs> Take that. But it is a spiritual gift intended for the building up of the church. And I will let you use your conscience and the word of God to decide those matters just like Paul did. So Paul tells us then the, go- the gathering should be orderly, which leads us to the last issue that Paul confronts head on, which is the idea of the resurrection. The resurrection. Which is funny here that there's, re- there's an issue regarding the resurrection. There's an issue about it. Because as Christians in Western culture, we have two pretty big days, right? We have Christmas and we have Easter. If you got into the midst of a bunch of pastors, they would probably call Easter the Super Bowl or something along those lines. Hey, you ready for Easter? It's like, yeah, it comes every year. <laughs> We're ready for it. We're going to preach the gospel. <laughs> Talk about how Jesus rose from the dead, all those things. It just becomes second nature to us as Christians. 
That's something that we celebrate. That's something that we do. We understand the importance of Easter. But people in Corinth were arguing that this didn't happen. That Jesus was never resurrected. And beyond that, it's not even important that it didn't happen. And that's the other issue that we have here. As the church is like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Whatever. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? He tells him that the resurrection is the cornerstone to our faith in Christ. That he believes in the resurrection because of the hundreds of people who saw Christ after he was killed at the hands of Romans. So he goes practically first, right? He's like, no, it did happen. There's proof. There's hundreds of people, some of which who are still alive, who saw Christ raised from the dead. They saw him after the Roman guard killed him and put him in the tomb. And then all of a sudden, Jesus showed up again. Like, go ask one of those hundreds of people. They'll tell you. So practically speaking, Paul's like, yep, okay. It did happen. But beyond that, we need to recognize that it is incredibly important to our faith. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his death is meaningless, and we're all still stuck in our own sin. We're all still stuck in our own selfishness, and we should just stop being Christians in the first place. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Paul tells them that that Jesus' resurrection is the hope of the entire world. It's why we should honor God with our bodies. It's why we should be unified in our faith. It's the source of power for loving people more than we love ourselves in the first place. Which is why Paul harkens back to a quote from the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. I know it's weird. You're like, what's the the key verse in 1 Corinthians is a verse from Hosea? Yeah, it is. Because like we know about Paul, he was a Jewish Pharisee. And Paul knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. So he quotes an Old Testament prophet in Hosea where he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So as he's writing to a church that largely would have been Gentile, made up of some Jews, he's hearkening back to Hosea saying, This was the plan all along. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the plan all along. He's going to conquer death. There is no more victory in death. Jesus defeated it. It's done. It's over. And you need to recognize that is what he's reminding the church in Corinth. And then we get to the last section, which is fairly straightforward. It's a salutation, but a stern reminder to all of them. Key verse there, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. It says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Do everything in love. So if we look back at the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps going back to this principle of love over and over and over and over again. Loving people is paramount to the gospel. Loving people is paramount to the gospel. We should be okay getting out of other people's ways so they can meet Jesus. We get so caught up in, in rules and traditions and, 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 and things that ultimately are going to fall away outside of doctrine, outside of Jesus, outside of his word. We get so caught up in those things sometimes, we don't realize that we're getting in the way of other people meeting God, meeting Jesus for the first time. Because rather than loving people well, we cling to the things that we know. We cling to the things that we consider rules, the things that we consider traditions. And because of that, we can't get out of our own way in order for other people to meet Jesus. We do it regularly. 
We get so caught up in rules that a lot of times we realize that the process of moving towards Jesus, we forget about the process of moving towards Jesus is messy. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if you have hard, fast rules about everything, then ultimately you're not being willing to move into the messiness of bringing people closer to Jesus, of being, bring people right alongside of you towards the resurrected Christ. We have to be willing to enter in to that messiness. Because the idea of Jesus is messy. It's filled with hard conversations where sometimes we need to express truth outright and say that's a sin. And then sometimes we need to abound in grace and say, come here, just let me give you a hug. I love you. I'm sorry that happened to you. There's a tension that we have to hold, but it's messy. And we have to be willing to enter into that. Having rules to manage things is good, but when it comes to loving people towards Jesus, rules tend to become obstacles to overcome rather than guidelines to direct us. That's why Paul in Corinthians didn't set out a whole bunch of rules. Paul said, well, if it's this situation, do this. If it's that situation, do that. What is that? It's messy. And we see that with Paul over and over and over again where he's noncommittal. Like, Paul, just tell us what to do, man. We'll do it. And he's like, well, if it's this situation, do that. Okay. And it's messy. It would be like, like you sitting in your room or sitting in your kid's room after the principal called and said that, hey, your kid acted out at school. He was being really mean to a bunch of other kids. I caught him yelling at them. And so I pulled him into my office and I just want you to know that I had a talk with him and uh, this, I gave him a warning but ultimately, if I see this happen again, we're going have to have to punish him in some way. And so you walk into your kid's room and say, I just got a call from your principal, bro. And you lay down the law, you're like, you're grounded for a week. Because anytime principal calls our home, then for sure that means that you're going to be punished in some way. And then as you're leaving your room, his meek little voice says, hey, dad. Yeah, what's up? No, it's not what's up. It's Yes. <laughs> And he says, Dad, I just want you to know that the reason I was yelling at those kids is because they're being really mean to my friend because he got a bad haircut and he had no one to defend him. And so because of that, I got, I got upset for him. Like, man, okay, this just got messy. <laughs> right? And that's what we're talking about here. It's the idea of loving people well. It, it, it means that we enter into the messiness of it all. And one of the me most messy situations we could figure out is when people say yes to God and they're trying to shed their old selves. They're, they're in the process of becoming holy. And we have to be willing to enter into those hard conversations, the messy conversations, and not just draw hard, fast rules. Because let's be honest, the way that I would have a conversation with somebody about their sin if they were on our board versus somebody who just came to faith would be two very different conversations. In the same way that, that, that some of you would come to me and say, hey, you're messing up, would be a much different conversation than the way that they would come to somebody who just came to faith. Paul is saying the guiding principle here is love. And your conscience should be your guiding principle along with the truth that God has given us. That we have to be willing to, to, to enter into those Conver those hard conversations because making hard fast rules makes things unloving and makes things cold 
But when entering into the messiness of people's lives, man, that's what it looks like to be loving. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And the big question is, so what? So this entire book is pointing people back to Jesus. Paul's saying, take a second, elevate where you're looking at this whole thing from, and recognize that we are one in Christ. This is about Jesus over and over and over again. It's about getting out of our own way, saying no to our own preferences in order for others to be able to say yes to Jesus. That's what this entire book is about. We have to set our pride. We have to set our ego aside. We have to be willing to set our traditions down. We have to be deferential to others so they can experience the same grace that was offered to us first. We have to be willing to do those things so other people can say yes to Jesus. The big idea here, and this is your last blank, that the love of others is incompatible with pride. It doesn't work. And that's oftentimes where we get to here is, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. These are my rules. These are things that I've set up. These are my traditions. These are the way that we do things. This is just the way that we do things. Well, unless it's doctrinal, I don't care how we do things. I care about Christ being proclaimed. And I care about new people coming to know him. And that's what Paul is talking about in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's a hard word. And it's a frustrating word. Because all of us love our traditions and we love the way that we do things because these are the way that we do things. And I can tell you you love them because you all sit in the same seats every week. But it's incompatible with pride and it is to be the fundamental principle that guides all of our actions. Let me take a second here and just remind everybody, I'm not saying we need to only offer grace and not tell people about the unchanging truth of God's word. I am not watering down the gospel at all. I'm merely saying that we have to say yes to loving God and loving people in order for them to know Christ in the first place. Our guiding principle has to be love. It has to be love. Can you imagine what it would look like if the fundamental principle that guided our actions was loving people well? Man, we wouldn't be known for what we're against as a church. And I'm talking about FB Hanford, I'm talking about the Capital C Church. We wouldn't be known for what we're against. We would be known for what we're for. The last 40 years in the evangelical church have been rough 40 years. And it's because for whatever reason, we become known as hateful, bigoted fear mongers. And I know that's not true. I know that's not true of this group of people. You know that's not true of this group of people. But there's a world of people who don't yet know him who need to recognize the fundamental principle that guides all of our actions as a church is what? Love. There's a whole world of people who need to know that. And that world starts with those people that you're already surrounded with. And we'll go back to it week in and week out. Man, God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your world, your relational world. We call them here your oikos. That every single day you have people that you are surrounded by who need to know Jesus that nobody else is going to be able to proclaim his name to except for you. 
you will meet people on a regular basis. You will encounter people on a regular basis that I will never get the opportunity to talk to. The pastor Jeff will never get an opportunity to talk to. That anybody on staff or any other volunteer will get an opportunity to talk to. But guess what? It's not our job in the first place. It's yours. As a fellowship of believers, it's your responsibility. There's a whole world of people who need to know that our guiding principle is that of what? Love. Bow with me. Father, thankful for, man, a hard word. And Paul, every single time, uh, gets frustrating, God, and maddening. Because I just want him to commit to what it is that we're supposed to do. Just tell me yes or no. Just, and God, we recognize that it is messy. Man, faith is messy. Entering into relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus is messy. Entering into relationships with people who know Jesus but aren't following him fully is messy. Entering into relationships with people who know Jesus and are living for Jesus is messy. And Father, I pray that we as a church would embrace that mess. And say, you know what? The only way for us to grow isn't just merely listening to a guy talk up here for 40 minutes on a Sunday. But it would be us doing life with one another so we recognize that, man, I can move forward because somebody else was willing to enter into my mess. And Father, hopefully I can allow others to move forward because I'm willing to enter into their mess because the guiding principle for me is gonna be love. Just like Paul talked about to the church in Corinth, that man, their guiding principle was gonna be love. That we're not gonna make hard, fast rules that, that ultimately just get in the way of people coming to know you. God, that we'd be willing to embrace mess. So we can say yes to some when they need to be said yes to and no to others when they need to be said no to. Father, I pray with all of that then that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that we would keep our nose down in scripture, that we would recognize what your truth is, that we would seek discernment and prayer from your spirit, God. And man, that we would just be willing to walk through the mess. And Father, there's those people here this morning who haven't yet said yes to you. God, I pray that they would, A, admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. You told us that in Romans last week. That, man, we're all sinful. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That, B, we would believe that you sent your Son on our behalf to be justified in order that we could spend forever with you and see that we choose to follow you every single day. And Father, I pray that that would be the proclamation as we leave here today, that we would choose to follow you with our guiding principle being love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all for being here. Uh, after uh, service, myself and Pastor Jeff will be up here if you need some prayer or anything like that. Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.